Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Zach, Tyler, and Ryan from Move Outdoors. And this is our brand new podcast, On the Move, presented by Move Outdoors, where you're going to follow us throughout our hunting season, learning new tactics, tips, and tricks. Yeah, we'll be sharing some of our uh, experiences throughout the year, what we're planning on doing, what our goals are for hunting, and any of the experiences that we have while we're out there in the field. And we'll try to bring them to you guys. Get ready to join us for the highs and cry with us with the lows. You're on the move. All right, everybody. Welcome to this episode of On the Move presented by Move Outdoors. I'm here with our co-host, Tyler, and our first ever guest, Jesse Bergenthes, who runs Bergy Bow Smithing out of Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, today, what we're really going to focus on is tuning your bow for deer season. Um... A lot of people, it seems, don't really know how to properly tune their bow, or they'll try and rush to the bow shop a couple weeks before the season or a couple days before the season even. Um, so we really wanted to sit down with Jesse, who's an incredibly knowledgeable bow tech and bow smith, who, of course, runs his own business and discuss the importance of tuning your bow, as well as going to a, a couple hunting stories here with Jesse. Um, so, Jesse, if you want to give a little overview slash intro of some of your accomplishments and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so um, I've been shooting a bow since I was five years old. Um, I My earliest memory, and I've told this story to a few people, not a ton of people know it, but uh, my dad was a big bow hunter. And I just remember as a kid, I watched my dad with an old Matthews switchback at 70 yards shoot a little ground squirrel uh, with his switchback and a heavy arrow without cert system, oddly enough. And um, just drill this squirrel at 70 yards. And I was like, this guy is is the mecca of bow hunting you know like this guy is the man you know he might as well have been fred bear standing in front of me you know and ever since that moment i was like dad i want to shoot a bow i want to shoot a bow and he bought me a bow and i was i remember i actually remember this very very vividly it was an old old little single cam bow and I, like I said, I was five years old and he just threw a cardboard box out at our hunting cabin and threw a log in it and gave me two arrows. And I just sat there and I shot it with my fingers and I just shot that bow all day, like literally all day until I just couldn't pull it back because my fingers were so sore. And, you know, through high school, like all of us, you know, I got caught up in sports and girls and all that stuff and, you know, didn't really bow hunt a lot. And then when I went to college, I was a I was a wrestler in high school and then into college, I was a wrestler and I just, I kept getting injured and I just kind of thought to myself, I was like, do I want to, you know, keep wrestling and risk getting injured to the point where, you know, in 20 years, you know, when I'm 40 years old that, you know, I can't lift my arm above my head or I, I can't play with my kids or, you know, when I have grandkids, I can't take them fishing or hunting and all that. And I was like, you know, uh, set my priorities aside and I lived in a very, my college town, Winona State here in Minnesota is right on the Mississippi, very, very popular fishing attraction, but it was also 20 minutes away from my family's hunting property. And, you know, being a broke college kid, I had to decide between fishing and bow hunting. And to this day, I've still never killed anything with a gun. And I just decided bow hunting was 
what I was going to do. And I picked up bow hunting again and really dove right down the rabbit hole. Met a lot of great people right off the bat. Uh, Bruce Ritter Clark, um, who recently had some health issues, helped me tremendously. Amazing person. He was with Ethics Archery at the time. Uh, ended up going to Hawaii and shooting an axis deer my junior year of college with another member from the ethics team. And then after I graduated, I went down to Texas and became a bow tech. Uh, really is kind of, I was like, you know, I'm going to go to Texas, you know, somewhere with a lot of bow hunters. You can bow hunt all year, basically, you know, pigs 365 days a year, exotics 365 days a year, and then whitetails during whitetail season. Went down there, met a lot of really cool, very, very knowledgeable people that have been in the industry for a long, long time. I mean, Texas, as many people know, is kind of a mecca for popular people. It's like it's like the redneck version of L.A., you know, and it, like there's just so many people in Texas that are into bow hunting, a lot of big names, you know. Um, like the owner of Austin Steel Company was one of our customers, you know, it, guy, tremendous person, uh, great archer, learned as much as I could, moved back to Minnesota and decided that I didn't really want to work in a pro shop again because uh, kind of like you were saying, a lot of people kind of get a lot of misconceptions about tuning bows. And I think a lot of it comes from there's so much media nowadays. And uh, with all that media, you know, you kind of have to sift through, for lack of a better terms, the BS versus the real stuff of what actually matters in a setup. And so I decided, you know, I was done working in a pro shop. I'm going to go and do my own thing and tune things right. You know, I'm gonna have to charge a more premium price, but everybody's gonna get a personalized experience. And uh, to this day, you know, I got over 5,000 good customers and, you know, I, I get bows shipped into me all over, from all over the US, even up in Alaska, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, that ship their bows to me and go through customs just for me to, work on their bow and so for me uh it's it's less about the money than it is about you know making sure that i'm spreading good knowledge about bow hunting and uh being able to you know further the sport that's awesome um wow i had a question there that was right on the tip of my tip of my tongue but i've lost it for the second tyler do you have anything you want to you want to ask jesse about here for from his his past experience the moment that you knew bow tuning was going to make a major impact in your performance yeah so when it comes to tuning a bow you know you can do everything right and if your tune is off a little bit, it's really just going to magnify that, right? You know, so um, you can have a wonderful grip, but if your tune is off a little bit, you know, at 90 yards, um, Zach has been the brunt of this a few times where, you know, I, I'm i shooting 90 yards and I'm two inches right, and Zach's like, dude, send it. Like, you're good. I To me, that's just not good enough. You know, I know that everything is working the way it should be and something is off with either my sight or my rest or my overall tune and everything. So for me, getting 
every one of my customers and my own personal bow to absolute perfection is really what drives me to, you know, dive down all these rabbit holes that go around the internet of, you know, fletching combinations, arrow weight, tuning methods, should you bear shaft, should you not, should you group tune, um, and, and all those little nuances that, that come in, you know, what's the most optimal arrow weight for every game animal on the planet. You know, that's a big topic the last five years. And, you know, my opinion varies from a lot of other people's opinion, but it's my opinion and it's based on experience from me and other hunters that I know and I trust. So like for me, that's where like really diving down the rabbit hole and like learning how to properly tune uh, made a big difference for me in my performance and in honestly my success in the woods. So is it safe to say then that you're not uh, you're not on the ferry dust, but you're also not on the speed wagon, huh? Yeah, when it comes to aerospeed, it's kind of a touchy subject, you know, because a lot of people say, you know, the faster the arrow goes, the deer's going to jump the string less. And a lot of people say the heavier the arrow is, the more it's going to penetrate, which is true. You know, uh, the more the heavier the arrow is, the more it's going to penetrate. But a pass through is a pass through. You know, once once you're through that animal, like it's just wasted you energy. You, you can't pass through any more than a pass through, you know. Um, yep. And and so for me, you know, that typically for me at 27 and a half to 28 inches of draw length, depending on the bow. Um, and I only shoot 65 pounds now. Uh, I shot 70 and 80 when I was shooting 620 grains. Uh, that number kind of ends somewhere between the 500 and the 545 grain range for me. Um, I don't really get too caught up in speed because no matter how light I go, I could go to like a 450 grain arrow and I'm still only going to be pushing like 285. Um, yep. Unless I'm shooting a speed demon bow, like a like a omen, or um, you know, a APA or a Darton or an expedition, you know, I'm not really going to be pushing any higher than about 285, 290. And for me, I like to carry multiple broadheads in my quiver. Um, I mean, just last year alone, I carried a Magnus Stinger, Sever 1.5, Sever 2.0, and a Magnus black hornet say razor so like the other thing you'll notice is as you get higher in these speeds sometimes the broadheads especially the fixed blades can be a little bit more finicky uh to get them to tune right that's not to say that you can't get them to tune right because you definitely can but they just they tend to be a little bit more finicky the wind has a little bit more of an effect on them when they're going that fast um so i like to hang anywhere between 240 feet per second and 265 feet per second personally Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not too far off of you there. I'm 27.75 to 28 and a quarter, depending on the bow and how it's really set up for uh, a comfortable draw length. And, and yeah, speed has never really played into my game either, just because I will never be able to get what the bow is, is rated for. If I slap the lightest arrow I can on the heaviest draw weight I can, I'm, I still don't think I could break 300 feet per second. I mean, I'm just right. not built for that 30 inch draw length pulling 75 pounds and can whip a 550 grain arrow at 312 feet per second or whatever Joe Rogan's setup is. 
Um. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier is uh, Gavin Benton, good friend of mine. Um, he's yeah. a 30 and a half, you know, good and for he him. Shoots, I'm jealous. And, and, and he <laughs> shoots 70 pounds. And every year when we're talking about arrow setups, whether it's trad or compound, he's always about 50 grains lighter than me. And I'm like, yeah, that's a little too light. And he's like, no, no. 525 is a little too heavy and i was like well, well. and then you know you you kind of think in the back of your mind well yeah he is a 30 and a half inch draw length he's probably getting 20 feet per second more than i would at that weight where i would rather have a little bit more penetration uh, whereas he's going to get that same amount of penetration with a lighter arrow it just is the way the physics work on it and all these bows nowadays anything i tell people this all the time anything within the last five to seven years you're golden as far as tuning ability uh your efficiencies your penetration all that stuff if you got a bow that's you know either a 2023 down to about a 2015 model about the halon is my cutoff uh you're you're pretty money as far as efficiencies go you know there hasn't been a huge leap in efficiencies in bow systems lately Mm-hmm. Oh, I I totally agree with that. A lot of the manufacturers seem to uh, it, there's complaints about this every fall when manufacturers come out with new bows, but um, they all seem to kind of retain the same cam systems, the same rough features on the bow. And I think, I mean, I'm sure all of these manufacturers are working on the next thing, but clearly it's not ready for market yet. So they're sticking with the most efficient cam system they can put out there. That's going to give you the most you can possibly get out of that bow. Um, I know just from doing some research online, like, like Matthews, their flagships have been going down in IBO speed, but their efficiencies have been going up. And if you compare last year's Matthews, which was what the V three X to the phase four, um, with the same arrow setup, the phase four is actually faster despite having a lower IBO speed because it's more efficient. Right. And I mean, I use that example, like my bow that I shot last year was the elite option seven at 65 pounds, same exact arrow, same draw length, same everything. The IBO on the option seven is 343. The IBO on my elite Omnia is 347. My Omnia with the same exact arrow, same setup is 20 feet per second faster than my option seven. Wow. So, and that's through the same chrono. You know, I chronoed them back to back right next to each other. Three arrow group, it's 20 feet per second faster. It's just more efficient systems. Um, I've told you this before, Zach. Um, I think we're at a point in the archery industry right now where the only thing we're going to see probably for the next five years is things are going to start getting quieter. Yeah. They're just going to get increasingly quieter and quieter until somebody hits a breakthrough in efficiency and breaks that, that consistent 350 IBO speed. And does it with like a decent amount of shootability. Cause you know, there's a couple bows Mm -hmm. out there that already have that 350 IBO speed, but you're talking five and three quarter, five and a half inch brace heights at that point. And that is a snappy bow to shoot where you really can't have any issues with your form. Yeah, I mean, Sophie's bow is a 350 IBO. Um, Which bow is she shooting? She's shooting the Expedition Escape at at 42 pounds. Now, very, very aggressive draw cycle. Very aggressive draw cycle, especially at her draw length. 
And, you know, me being able to tune bows, I actually, her draw length is like 25 and a half. I bumped her draw length to 20, 25, but I left her mods at 25, or I left her draw stop at 25 and a half. So what that basically did for her is as it's coming into full draw, she passes her valley about halfway through or about three quarters into her draw length instead of it stacking up at three quarters and then falling okay. into the valley. So she has a longer valley, but she's able to shoot higher poundage, still retain that speed, but also, you know, not lose any efficiency or tunability or anything like that. You know, and that's just little things that you can do with certain cam systems that you can't do with others. Like you can't do that on the Omnia. Um, but on the expedition with that movable let off wheel that you're supposed to match with your draw length, if you just change it a little bit, and as long as everything's in time, when you change it, it'll stay in time. You're just over-rotating that cam and, you know, changing where that valley is. So that's how she's able to shoot a 350 IBO bow and at 42 pounds. And she's still getting 212 feet per second with a 450 grain arrow at 42 pounds, you know? That's really impressive. So at 25 inches, I can't really complain too much, you know? No. Not at all. And I've seen Sophie shoot when I came up and did a 3D shoot with you, and she's a good shooter. She's a yeah. good shooter. Yeah. Um, it just took a little bit to, you know, figure out where that, that sweet spot was for her and that tune. And that's another thing that just makes me love tuning bows is, like, everybody's different, you know? And and being able to figure out what works for one person versus another is just another, you know, notch in my belt, per se, of of, you know, being able to help people figure those issues out. So, um, given, like you said, you have bows shipped in from all across the country, sometimes even internationally. Um, how can you, or how are you, I should say, um, making sure that those bows are like, perfect for that customer when they leave oh, oh i only ask because the obviously the customer's not right there with you they can't you know shoot right. it and say oh this feels good i'll drop my draw length an eighth of an inch put a couple twists in the cable take a couple twists out of the string you know right so i think it'll be easiest to explain that if i kind of explain my tuning process while i explain that yeah um, please do uh, so basically, before any customer sends their bow to me, I make sure that they set their draw length to where they want it, and they set their peep. That is the two most important things that I need them to set before they send their bow to me. The first thing that happens when their bow gets to me, I put it in the press. Just I don't depress the limbs at all. I just set it in the press, and I measure from the top of the D-loop to the center of the peep. And I measure that in centimeters, not in inches. I measure it in centimeters. Um, Is that just because metrics more yeah, accurate? Yeah, it's just smaller increments, so you get a lot more accurate numbers. And then I have a notebook. And in that notebook, every customer that comes to me, I write down their name, their bow, the axle to axle, the brace height, because... Let's say one customer comes to me with a 35-inch axle-to-axle bow, and then the next year they buy a 30-inch axle-to-axle bow. That string angle 
is different. Uh, it changes everything. So when you go, when I, if I try to set their peep where it was on their 35 inch bow, it's going to be way too uh, high or low. One of the two. Um, so I have a quick little it's math hard. equation that can get it close. Um, but typically a lot of my guys, they, they tend to stick near the same kind of setup. You know, the guys that are shooting 33s, they don't, they don't go down to 29s, you know, and, and yeah. the guys that are shooting 29s usually don't go up to a 35 the next year. Um, but if it does, I just make sure that they send it to me with the peep in there. So I write all those measurements down and then I put their new strings on, uh, strings is a big deal for me. Um, I'm super, super picky with my strings. There's only two string manufacturers that I even touch, and uh, that's Catfish Customs and Unbound Archery. Uh, personally, I prefer the Unbound strings a little bit more than the Catfish strings, mostly because I know Nick over at Unbound from before he made strings. And I just know that he's very, very precise. And I really, really like all the little details that he puts into his builds. So I just prefer to use those strings and those materials because I know they're not going to stretch. And the longer that I can keep a bow in tune, the less my customer has to come back to me. I don't want people spending money with me six, seven times a year. I want them to spend money with me one time and be good until they need new strings. And so... Once I sw swap the strings, I will uh, tie your, my D-loop, set my center shot, set my cam timing, and I always, always have my customers send me a bear shaft. Always. And a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about bear shaft tuning. There's a lot of little nuances that come with bear shaft tuning. A lot of people say their bow is bear shaft tuned, when in reality, it's probably not. Um, Every customer's bow, whether it's right-handed or left-handed, I'm a left-handed shooter, um, I bear shaft at eight yards. No closer than eight yards ever through paper. Um, the reason for that is when you're too close to the paper, a lot of people shoot right up next to the paper. A lot of times that arrow hasn't even left your bow before it's going through the paper. Yeah, it has no flex. Yeah, it, has, it hasn't had any flex yet, so you can get a lot of false readings there. Um, and also, at about five yards, it hasn't flexed enough, in my opinion. So at eight yards, you know, you're getting a realistic flight trajectory or path. And then from there, I'll fletch up arrows if we're doing fletchings. Otherwise, I'll take a fletched arrow and I'll double check. And I also always knock tune every single arrow. I don't use a RAM tester. Uh, a lot of people really like RAM testers. I don't do it. I just shoot all of them in. It takes way longer, like ridiculously longer, but I think it's more worth it because you're physically shooting each arrow through. And uh, the way to kind of circle back to your question of how I can make sure that every bow is shooting perfect for every customer is I have personally, my buddy has a Hooter shooter. I have shot right-handed and left-handed against the Hooter shooter, and I get the same tears no matter what bow it is. So if I can get the same tears as a Hooter shooter that has no human input in it, I know that that bow is statistically and data-wise, it is shooting perfectly. Now, is that me saying that I'm the greatest archer ever? No, I'm not. Um, there's plenty of people that are better than me. But as far as my form goes, I have a very repeatable form that I can match that hooter shooter to. Um, 
And so I tune everything right down the center, you know, perfect bear shafts to the 16th of an inch, 32nd of an inch. And then I send it back to them. And I always tell my customers, I said, hey, when you get this back, you may have to adjust your sight a little or your rest a 32nd of an inch one way or another, but never more than that. Mm-hmm. And I've never had any issues. I've never had any complaints with it. Uh, a lot of the times the bow, just like all of us, can shoot better than the Indian, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, at the end of the day, I haven't had any real issues with it. But when the guys do ship that stuff in, uh, I do let them know, hey, just so you know, there might be slight variances between your grip and my grip and and uh, your anchor point, my anchor point, and, and all of these kind of little variables and I just let them know that right up front that, you know, you might have to make a little adjustment when you get it. That's, and that's perfectly normal. And everybody's totally fine with that. Good. I, I assume that's just because, you know, everybody's grip is slightly different. So, you know, right. yeah. Okay. That's what I figured. Tyler, I saw you had a question here. Yeah. So I'll approach you as the average Joe. Um, as I am one, uh, I'm one of those guys picks up my bow every year, shoots it, you know, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 yards. I'm, I'm hitting where I want to be hitting. I call it good. As someone who wants to get into tuning, what will be your first steps or what would you really do to get into tuning your bow? The first steps for sure is getting a press, getting a paper tuner. And most importantly, out of anything I think even maybe even a little bit more than a press is a draw board. Um, anytime that your cam timing is even just a little bit off. Now, some people prefer top cam to be just a, a 16th fast or the bottom cam a 16th fast, whatever the case may be, it doesn't really matter. But if you don't know what your cam timing is doing, you're going to run into so many problems. You're going to chase your tail around over and over and over. So press paper tuner, and a draw board is my ideal first three steps. After that, it's just making sure that everything is in spec. You know, um, a lot of bows the last couple of years were 13 sixteenths for center shot. The Omnia, if you actually read the manual, which I did, uh, seven eighths is the center you got, shot. You got a manual with yours? My yeah. man. The manual that came with mine was actually for the previous year's elites. Yeah. So if you actually like, I I got it off the elite website because a lot of people were having that cable rub issue um, with the Omnia and elite put out a a manual to, on how to properly fix that. And uh, you know, a lot of people were setting their bow at 13, 16 and getting a, a tear you know and they're like well i can't fix this and keep it at 13 16 well if you read the manual it says seven eighths see that's interesting because when i started tuning my omnia i originally set my rest at 13 16 assuming it that would be center shot and i did right. have to move it slightly farther out to get a perfect tear right and seven eighths is if you put it at seven eighths and you have your cam lean perfect uh you will get a bullet hole with uh with the omnia um now if you still get cable rub you got to go through a couple hoops to fix that depending on how you want to fix it whether you want to shim it to get closer to 13 16 so you want to limb swap um i did both on mine 
uh a lot of people don't know that i haven't really said it a lot because I, I, I didn't tuned... even know that i talked to you like every day i didn't even know yeah. that. <laughs> so i i tuned my bow without limb swapping or shimming and it shot fine and uh just to get a little bit more forgiveness i swapped my top limbs i didn't swap my bottom limbs i only swapped my tops and i got a little bit better hold at full draw for me and so i just swapped my top limbs and then i shimmed the cam over just a hair and uh retuned it and set it up and it, it's been great at uh, i'm just shy of seven eighths center shot um so for me i i tinker pretty much all year until right about now which the only thing i really have left to do on my bow is to really finalize my marks past 60 yards um and i'm pretty much done tuning for the year and it'll sit that way until i change strings on it and then i'll mess with it again um but kind of back to kind of circling back tyler to your question like once you get those three things and you make sure that your bow is in spec the next big thing for me that I always tell people is like walk back tuning. You know, um, a lot of people don't walk back tune anymore because you can get a lot of information from your paper tears and your bear shaft tears. But bear shaft tuning can be really, really daunting for somebody that's new uh, to tuning a bow. Walk back tuning will get you pretty dang close for 90% of the situations that you're going to encounter. And most people can walk back to him without a press. You know, having a press is just a nice thing to be able to make sure that your timing is on. Um, that's really, in all reality, the only thing I use a press for is to set my cam timing and to align my peep. Um, past that, I don't really use my press for a whole lot unless I'm limb swapping or fixing a blown up bow or something like, or swapping strings. Um, as far as like pure tuning, goes the only thing i'm really using a press for nowadays is uh you know setting my cam timing and moving my peep so that's one of the benefits of the the elite you're shooting um i know my math used anytime i wanted to adjust anything on that thing it was basically put it in a press pop the axles out swap the top hats or put it in right. a press put a twist into the cable take a twist out of the string whatever it was like that but um so moving forward then just just the to play a little bit of devil's advocate here for those who aren't familiar with it. Um, can you go through like, what is walk back tuning the process of walk back tuning? Well, yes, I can. I don't do it. Um, so <laughs> I'm probably not the best person to explain it. Cause I haven't, I probably haven't done it in five, 10 years. You know, I've been tuning bows for about, 10, 12 years, and I bet you I haven't walked back tuned in about 10. Um, but basically, you're going to make a cross on your target, and you'll shoot at that cross, and you're going to make adjustments to your sight and your rest until, uh, you know, with your with your lefts and rights, you're going to aim at that, at that vertical line, and you're going to move your rest until you're impacting on that line. And then with your sight, you're going to do the same thing with your ups and downs and your lefts and rights until basically – until you're forcing the bow to shoot down the center of wherever it's currently set. Um, it's a great method for people that are just whitetail hunting 20 to 30 yards. Um, if you're a Western hunter that, you know, wants to shoot that 60, 70, 80, 90 yards um, all summer, you're not going to have as good a luck in my opinion. Um, 
you're going to have way better luck, you know, making sure that everything is bear shaft tuned mm -hmm. and that you are setting your third and second axis perfectly. You know, it's third axis more importantly than anything, in my opinion, because um, a lot of people don't know that third axis will actually affect your impact point on flat land past 70 yards. So a lot of people will realize that, you know, 30, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, you're hitting dead center, and then 70, you're right, 80, you're more right, 90, you're more right. That's your third axis coming into play. It's not necessarily your second axis. Usually it's your third axis because you got to remember at 90 yards, you're holding your bow at an upward angle. So it's the same thing as mimicking an angled shot just at longer distances because you're holding that bow higher. Your grip is changing. Uh, things are always changing and moving. And so you got to make sure that your third axis is, is dead set and, my second, and your second axis too. So, so um, what would what would you say then for like uh, there's some cheaper slider sites out there that actually don't have third axis adjustment. Would you just stay away from those? Personally, I would um, for the guys that just want to practice out to 60 yards. They're not going to hunt at 60 yards. I think it's a great option to get you into sliders. Um it's for the people that, you know, this kind of goes back to media. You know, we see a lot of media, a lot of YouTube channels. I'm not going to name drop anybody that are using, you know, Excel land slides. Too. <laughs> 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 Where you see, you know, HHA Tetras, Spot Hog Triple Stacks, Excel land slides, all these high end five, $600 sites. And People are like, well, how come I can only get my results, the same results out of my $200 site? Well, plainly put, it's not a $500 site. You know, it, it's just not. And uh, there's a lot of false expectations that a lot of these content creators kind of give people, whether they mean to or, or not. Um, there's a lot of false expectations that can kind of come about with that. And so you kind of got to know the limits of your equipment, too. Yeah, that makes sense. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, Tyler, do you have anything else at the moment? So if someone was, say, looking into a new bow, what do you look for when you're picking out a new bow that you think is A, a, a extra, maybe tunable per se, or B, at least is going to be able to be tuned properly? The biggest... And this is kind of where archery sites get personal. You know, everybody likes certain things depending on their draw length and their draw weight and so on and so forth and what they like in draw cycle and grips. Um, but for me personally, I like anywhere from a six to seven inch brace height, preferably a seven. My Omni is a six. I haven't shot a six inch brace height bow since 2015, probably. Um so it's kind of new waters for me. Um, again, not that I can't shoot it. It's just I'm not used to shooting six-inch brace sights. I prefer a seven-inch brace sight. I prefer a 33-inch axle-to-axle bow. The most important thing for me when I choose a bow for myself is how it holds. I, I don't care how fast it is. I don't care how tunable it is because I can get anything to tune. I want it to hold like a rock at full draw. I want my pin to sit where I want it to go, and I want to be as accurate as possible. Accuracy is my number one feature on any bow, any bow at all. 
is accuracy. I don't. I can make any grip work. I can make any draw cycle work as long as that bow holds at full draw. I don't care. Um, but not everybody can do that. So the thing that I always tell people: a lot of people get married to brands, and I tell. And Zach was kind of married to Matthews for a little while, and I told him, I said, I said, dude, you really need to go to a shop that has a ton of options and shoot everything and don't make a decision that first day shoot everything that day come back a different day shoot them all again in a different order and then after two or three times of doing that decide which bow held the best for you shot the best and was the most and felt the most consistent to you at that point that's the bow that you need to pick up you know don't worry about all the tuning features. You know, do I like the set technology? Yes. Do I like how PSE, you can pop those shims out without a press and put new shims in? Yes. I like all of that. You know, the, the old primes with the dual wide cams and no cam lean. I liked that too. But at the end of the day, if the bow doesn't hold well for me, I'm not going to buy it. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, archery, archery is so personal for everybody that you just got to tell people, you know, a lot of people, like I said, they get married to these brands, you know, and uh, just go out and shoot everything and just pick up the bow that shoots the best for you. Because at the end of the day, that deer, that elk, that bison, that caribou, that moose it doesn't care whether you're shooting a Matthews or a Hoyt. You know, it, it doesn't care, it, you know, shoot what is going to make you the most ethical hunter possible and that's just the bottom line in my opinion yeah the, the bow brand argument is a little bit like uh truck brands where guys are like <laughs> i'm you know i'm strictly ford i'm strictly dodge i'm strictly chevy and oh, hey, i won't that, look outside a... matthews i won't look outside hoyt <laughs> i won't look outside pse that's a touchy subject because i am strictly a ford guy <laughs> you know honestly i'm pretty i'm i'm very married to ford ford has treated me really well and i know yeah. tyler's really married to dodge because dodge has treated him pretty well too so i, I have <laughs> i've i've never drove anything but a ford my first car was a ford my current vehicle is a ford and everything in between has been a ford um i so I'm I started with a Chevy car, but every truck has been a Ford. Yeah. I almost bought a Chevy truck once, but the dealership, uh, I told him they wanted five grand for it. I told him I have 4,500 cash right now, walk out the door with it, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to do it. They said they had somebody else coming to look at it, the old dealer trick. And uh, I said, okay, then I'm walking. I went home, went on Facebook Marketplace, found an F-150, bought the F-150 that night, and the the dealership called me back the next morning and said, Hey, we'll take that 4,500 cash. Now I'm like, Ooh, spend it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the whole Ford thing for me kind of boiled down to my dad always drove Fords. And then when I bought this most recent truck, my dad switched over to Chevy and I was like, I was like, dad, you've been driving Fords for like 20 years, 30 years. And now you're switching to a Chevy. He's like, well, my buddy was my salesman and he went over to Chevy. So now I'm buying Chevys. And I was like, oh, you son of a gun. (laughs) My dad said if he ever leaves Ford, he's only ever going to look at Toyota because apparently he's really interested in uh, the Tundras. Yeah, those Tundras are good trucks. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, I mean, back to Back to what what this (laughs) podcast is actually about here. Um, So you had mentioned uh, 
you like um i think you said it was between like 245 and 260 fps on your arrows mm-hmm. um you know how would you recommend people go out and choose an arrow weight and an arrow brand like um this is something i'm i'm pretty passionate about this where I get really frustrated when I see people that like they go and spend $1,200 on a bow and then their next post on Facebook is like, what is the cheapest arrow I can get for this bow? And I'm like, that is the thing that matters far more than what bow you have. I would rather have a set of arrows. That's $200 a dozen, uh, coming out of a $600 brand new bow than, a set a dozen arrows that cost $50 at Walmart out of a, two thousand dollar flagship right um it that's a hard one too it it gets very personal for a lot of people and for me i do things a lot different than most people you know when i was back on the high momentum and the high flc pages on facebook i was you know pinching grains you know trying to get the most foc the most optimal weight in all this and you know over the years i when it comes to picking arrows for me, I'm pretty much married to my arrow setup. Um, mostly for the fact that I have 64 of them built the exact same way. So if I ever change, Oh, that's it. It's like, it's like, well, I buy a dozen every year. So whether I need it or not, I buy a dozen. Um, I'm just, I tell people I'm preparing for the apocalypse, you know, so. uh, (laughs) Well, you don't shoot total total archery challenge. I shoot total archery challenge. So I need a new dozen every year. (laughs) So I, I buy a new dozen every year and I build them exactly like however my arrow setup was the last year. And so the last six years I've been shooting the same arrow setup. Um, But for me, I'm kind of married to my setup in that aspect. Not that it, I'm not saying that it's the best arrow setup out there but if you take the time to set it up properly it performs just as well as these 300 hundred dollar dozens um so i just tell people you know find a diameter that you like preferably a 204 um because i find that 166s they penetrate great they fly great in the wind but durability is just not there that and finding I find, parts for a 166 is a nightmare yeah a, a good quality so aftermarket parts are very very limited they're few and far between you know you got the valkyrie system you got the iron will hit collar with the hit insert and mm-hmm. you got the ethics system that's about the only high quality setups unless you're getting a serious archery arrow then they have very very good component system but their arrows are pretty stupid expensive in my opinion um and that's serious s-i-r-i-u-s i I think is how you spell it yeah 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 great arrows great phenomenal like the bluetooth or like the radio system in your car right (laughs) um great arrows nothing wrong with them the big thing for me with when it comes to arrows is you know I am kind of a budget shopper when it comes to arrows because I do kill quite a bit of animals a year. Like last year I killed 13 animals. You know, I, it's not uncommon for me to kill a lot of stuff and I like to have an excess amount of arrows. I don't know why. Cause I, maybe it's cause I do stupid stuff. Like the other day I messaged you that I shot a bear shaft at a hundred yards just cause, and I, I ended up losing that arrow. Um, but 
I just wanted to see how a bear shaft flies at a hundred yards. I I've never done it, you know? And so I always like to have an excess when it comes to arrow builds though, I'm pretty nonchalant when it comes to that, you know, I go, here's my arrow, you know, for me, black Eagle rampage. That's just, it's my arrow. That is, I'm always going to shoot the black Eagle rampage. The price point is right where I want it. There are 150 bucks a dozen for bear shafts in the 0.001 straightness. They're rolled carbon, so they do have a stiff spot and a weak spot versus, like, the axis are protrude carbon, which, if you don't know what that is, basically, from my understanding, I don't know if they're still making them this way. At least when I heard this information, this is how they were making it. So somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But they're rolled into a tube, and then they're heated up, and then basically pulled and rotated into their diameter. So the spine kind of varies throughout it in their stiff and weak spot. A little bit easier to knock tune an axis arrow versus a black eagle because the black eagles are rolled. So there is an overlap in that carbon and one part of that spine. So you really do have to knock tune them, in my opinion, to get the most accuracy out of them. Um, And then I, I take my shaft, I cut it down to length and I go, okay, this is how much my bear shaft with no insert and a knock weigh. Now let's add my fletchings in my wrap. What do I want my finished arrow weight to be? I want it to be somewhere between 500 and 550 grains. So what do I got? to? And then I just load the front end up until I hit that weight. Um, okay. And that's that's basically the gist of how i build my arrows i don't shoot for a certain amount of foc i don't shoot for a certain amount of you know this that or the other thing i just load the front end up until i hit my target weight and i'm good on spine uh, it could be, it could be way way stiff it could be optimal, but I'll never shoot a weak arrow. Uh, weak arrows will never tune. Stiff arrows will always tune. So I've, I've shot a couple of years ago, I shot 250 spine black eagles, and they were like way too stiff for my setup. I was shooting like 70 pounds. I was only shooting like 580 grains. But if I went to a 300 spine, I couldn't hit that 580 grain mark without being weak. So I was just way overly stiff on the 250 spine. But I was okay with that. It tuned up just fine. It shot great. It got me to the arrow weight that I wanted. So that's how I build my arrows. I just kind of throw weight at it until I hit my mark. You know, I've I've done the same when it comes to uh, going back to how you can say you can tune a stiff arrow, you can't tune a weak arrow. I've done the exact same thing where um, the one year I actually, I backed off my draw weight to 60 pounds for the year um, just because I didn't really have a good reason to do it. I just did it. Um, I backed my draw weight down to 60 pounds and was shooting, I think it was 515 grains was my total arrow weight. And it was... Uh, a 240 spine eastern bloodline and i got that thing to tune beautifully absolutely beautifully and by every measure you can think of i was way over spined for that arrow setup right yeah i i don't really buy like the the thing that made me realize that this whole arrow weight conversation is kind of overrated is there's so many studies showing that everywhere between 500 and 550 grains on a compound bow is about optimal you're not going to lose much speed you're not going to gain much speed going from 500 to 550 you're not going to lose any penetration you're not going to gain any penetration you're not losing and gaining any trajectory ranch ferry has a video on it um do i 
subscribe to the ranch fairy thought process? Not entirely. Um, do I subscribe to the Ashby studies? Not entirely. Um, there's holes in both of those arguments. Absolutely. There is. Yeah. But do I, do I subscribe to MFJJ's theory? either no you know there's there's parts and pieces that i agree with and i disagree with and that's the beauty of our tree is everybody gets to shoot what they want you know yeah um if you want to shoot a 400 grain arrow at a moose be my guest i i could care less if you want to shoot that at a moose i would just hope that you're doing it with a fixed blade you know and yep and so for me I don't really get dive too deep into that because the the thing that made me realize that there's so many holes in this is when I went to Hawaii and I was access deer hunting. And when I was in Hawaii, I brought a 620 grain arrow with a single bevel broadhead and 87 pound draw weight. And I shot my access deer buck on the second day at four yards. Now, I shot him at four yards, hard quartering to me, went through his front shoulder, came out his opposite butt cheek, and buried in the ground. Deer ran five yards, tipped over. Did I need a 620-grain arrow to shoot an axis deer at four yards? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, you know? And on top of that, I was shooting 87 pounds, you know? I was shooting a 620-grain arrow at like 270 feet per second. Jeez, you know, and so it was, it kind of dawned on me after I shot that deer. I was like, I got all this money into 200 grain broadheads, these heavy inserts, this heavy draw weight that I hate drawing late November sitting in a tree stand. And what am I really gaining at 620 grains versus 540, 530? And then the next year I shot a deer at like 70 yards with a 500 grain arrow and a slick trick viper trick blew right through her right through both shoulders dead in 15 20 yards you know um and that's kind of how i got to my point of all right 500 to 550 is my range of where i want to be any lighter than that i'm just a little too light for my draw length and my draw weight and any heavier than that i'm not really gaining anything so why do i need to go heavier Yep. I, I agree with that. So when I first jumped on the heavy arrow train, um, uh, Oh geez, it was probably five, six years ago at this point. Um, I had a 600 grain arrow since then I have been progressively backing down the weight and I've found my sweet spot is pretty much the same as yours, right between 500 and 550 grains this year. I'm shooting the lightest arrow I've shot in well, since I shot that 600 grain arrow, I think it's like I said, five, six years ago. Um, and that's at 495. I'm shooting four, 495 grains. And the only reason I'm shooting 495 grains is because I dropped my head weight from 150 to 125 simply because of the availability of 125 grain broadheads. If something right. were to go wrong on a Western hunt, you know, I forget my broadheads at home something something stupid like that i can drive to just about any bow shop and i'll be able to pick up 125 grain heads you're not going to be able to drive to any bow shop and pick up 150 grain heads it's going to have to be a specialized shop a shop that sells like a lot of traditional equipment because a lot of traditional shops or shops that carry traditional equipment i should say seem to carry that 150 to you know 250 ish 
broadheads, but for me, the big reason I switched is simply broadhead availability. I'm still sticking with the same brands. I'm still shooting VPA and Sever, but if something went wrong and I needed to go to a local shop and pick up a broadhead, I know they'll have 125 grain. I, and I can almost guarantee they won't have 150 grain. Right. And, and that was kind of the same. Like another reason why I don't go any lighter than my current setup is I did the math recently actually because i was going to cut about 30 grains off my arrow weight so I, I, don't, I don't know it, if you know this or not but tyler and i are both engineers by uh training so and by schooling so come on give us the math we like this stuff so we love the math I, I did the math on it and it would cost me just to swap my inserts to hit 30 grains lighter it would cost me almost 250 dollars just in not worth it just in not insert material it. Um, just to get new inserts. And then on top of that, I have to sit here and I have to, with a drill bit, knock out all my old inserts because I don't hot melt anything. Once it's yep. in there, it's in there. It's in it, there. Yep. It, like I'm not taking it out. I'm not hot melting it because I've, I tried the hot melt thing. And when I was in Hawaii, I had an insert fall out of my arrow. Wow. Like, stri- like straight up fall out because I hot melted it in and it was so hot. Wow. That it heated up my shaft enough sitting in the blind that the glue loosened and the insert just fell out. Now, and I was using high temp hot melt. And so for me, I was just like, it's not worth me knocking all these inserts out, throwing these away, and then putting new inserts in to lose 30 grains of arrow weight. And, you know, I'm going to kind of open a can of worms here. So I'm sorry. But mechanicals versus fixed blades you know i i crapped all over mechanicals for like 10 years just non-stop all i shot was fixed blade broadheads and then last year i switched over to the sever and i've had some people go oh the sever works great and some people go oh the sever is trash and it's like i shot my mule deer at 82 yards last year blew clean through it with a sever and buried in the dirt behind it, deer ran 30 yards and tipped over. Yep. You know, uh, I can't, I have no complaints with the sever. Would I put a rage on there? Probably not. Um, but like I also said at the beginning of the podcast, I carry multiple broadheads for multiple situations. I know my fixed blade will fly out to 90 yards if I want to take that shot. Um, but there's, there's so many nuances that you just got to make sure and, Kind of to Tyler's point, you know, when you're first starting to tune a bow, there's so many people that, you know, just throw a mechanical on there because they can't get their fixed blades to fly right. Yeah. I know that this year I am going to hunt with the sever, but I broadhead tuned my bow with a cutthroat. Yeah. I've got, I've got six severs and six VPAs lined up and, um, you know, I shot, I shot a couple deer with the severs last year. Unfortunately, Every deer I shot with the sever, um, I ended up spining it because one, I underestimated the yard or overestimated yardage on one of them. And then the other one, uh, I just didn't realize that it had turned and quartered as much to me as it was. And when it, when I shot it loaded up to leave and I ended up hitting it like right here and just spining it and he dropped. But, um, I'll tell you what, man, I've been impressed with how those severs have performed. And yeah, me too. Uh, for anybody who listens to the podcast, if you haven't seen any of John Lusk bow hunting adventures, is I think the channel name, just just search John Lusk 
uh, or Lusk. Broad I, I think it. I think it's Lusk. I think it's Lusk. Lusk's Outdoor Adventures or Lusk Archery Adventures, something like that. It, it's something like that. The dude does uh, broadhead testing videos. The Sever is the best mechanical broadhead he's ever tested. Well, like, the Sever won't, the 1.75 is the best broadhead he's tested, period. Yeah, just period. End of story, the best one. And, so, and, and let's it's touch a good on that broadhead. for a second. Let's touch on that for a second because the thing with Lusk's test, there's, this goes back to content that's out on the market right now. The thing with Lusk's content is that there's no favoritism. Every test is the same, you know? Yeah. He's not there he's shooting the broadheads through the same mediums, the same testing material over and over and over every single time. So if you really want to gauge how a broadhead is going to perform, you got to see all these broadheads being tested the same exact way every single time. And he is shooting these broadheads through the exact same testing methods every single time and that's how he's getting his broadhead ratings that he's putting out it's not his opinion yeah it's not See, his opinion at all just evaluating on that i mean when lusk first started posting these broadhead reviews i gave him crap i i'm not going to pretend that i didn't um i told him like it wasn't a good way to test a broadhead it doesn't compare to real life and i still i still stand by those statements a lot of what he does does not compare to real life situations however with what he's doing he's basically giving you a broadhead to broadhead comparison in which that makes his testing incredibly accurate because like jesse just said he's putting every broadhead through the same tests so that gives a one-to-one comparison between these broadheads so yeah if he was just doing a one-off, like if, if he just took a random broadhead and tested it the way he's testing these broadheads and posted it, I'd be like, this means nothing. But because he's tested so many different brands and makes and models, and he's keeping them all consistent with how he rates them and all the testing procedures that he does, it's an incredibly accurate test now. And, you yeah. know, good for him for putting all this time and money into it. And I think it's paying off. Yeah, I I do too. And and you can see he posts some hunting videos himself too. And like, he really he likes to go to Africa. Yeah. He really <laughs> likes to go to Africa, but he doesn't only shoot like his highest rated broadheads at animals. No, he doesn't. He shoots whatever no. broadhead he wants to shoot, you know, yep. for that hunt. And, and that's the thing I really like about him is because, you know, for a while he was really, really pushing those Bishop broadheads for a while. And yeah, he was. now, now he pretty much shoots everything with a sever, you know, and, and he was like mechanicals or da, 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 whatever he said. I'm not going to quote him because I don't watch you whizzlers and flappers yeah. <laughs> and whatever ranch fairy calls them. And, and now you can just see what he's using. And it, like I said before, it is a very, very accurate test. And what Zach said, it's very accurate test that he's getting consistent results. Is it going to equate to performance on an animal? Not necessarily. No, no not but necessarily. There is these constants that when you're doing a scientific, I hate that word, by the way, especially in archery, a scientific test. It's like there's too many variables in archery to make anything a scientific test. Yeah. And whenever you see somebody make a post on Facebook, I don't care how high up in a certain bow company that this person is like 
just be very weary of the underlying uh method that they've done it with the message they're trying to send with this test and you really got to make sure they're being impartial with the data i spent the first little bit of my career the first couple years of my career as an engineer working as a test engineer and interpreting data and let me tell you it is ridiculously easy to manipulate data to give you the results you want ridiculously easy to yeah. misinterpret and manipulate data to get the results that you want unless you're doing it with a 100% bias-free approach. And, you know, to that point, when it comes to Facebook, I try not to give advice. Um, I really do try not to. I end up giving probably more advice than I should. Um, but I never do it on the public side of Facebook. I always comment, hey, man, I'd be more than happy to help you out. Shoot me a DM, you know, and a lot of the stuff that I go to as far as tuning a bow, setting up a bow, arrow, broadhead, hunting, anything that I'm doing archery related, I'm bouncing these ideas off of killers, not shooters. I'm basing yep. this stuff off of people that are consistently killing animals every single year and are consistently seeing results and those are the people that I ask my questions to. And like I said before, I might know a lot, but I don't know everything. But I like to bounce ideas off of other people that are killers. There's so many people on Facebook that shoot an animal once every three to five years. And it may be a good buck. It may be a mid-range buck. It might be a doe that they're shooting once every five years. And they shoot a deer and they think that they have the right to come out and share all this advice don't listen to that advice. Take advice from people that are killing animals consistently. You know, Aaron Snyder, Brian Barney, Chris B, um, you know, uh, John Dudley. You know, I don't agree with a lot of John Dudley's stuff, but I do agree with a lot of his tuning stuff, you know. And, um, you know, you take advice from these people that are killing animals consistently. And those are the people that you want to listen to because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to hit 60 yards every single time. Well, I am. But at the same time, my goal is I'm a bow hunter. I'm not a target archer anymore. I'm a bow hunter. I want the best results for bow hunting. Go to bow hunters. Go to people that are killers. Don't go to these yep. Facebook experts. Yeah, you're not going to, if you're looking to shoot more mature bucks, you're not going to go to the guy who has a picture of, you know, two does in the last three years on his Facebook right. profile. You're going to go to the guy who shot three or four mature bucks last year in, in three or four different states and has been doing it for the last couple of years. You want to go to the guys who really know what they're talking about here, and Jesse is definitely one of those guys. So, right. so since I brought that up real quick, Jesse, um, why don't you go ahead and, and give yourself a little bit, bit of a plug here so everybody knows how they can find you. We're not yeah. wrapping up yet. I just want to make sure that we put that in there that people know how to find you. Yeah, the easiest way is Facebook. Um, I have a Facebook page, uh, Bergy Bowsmithing, on Facebook. Uh, you can DM me there or a lot of people. Like I said in the beginning, I really like to build a personal relationship with my with my clients and my customers. Uh, I Building a personalized relationship is really, really important to me. So feel free, if you want work done or you have questions, 
DM me directly on my personal page. I don't care. Um, I know a lot of people would rather you direct it to their business page. I don't care. Um, message me personally, message me on my business page. Also, I got uh, TikTok is Bergie Bow Smith, and my YouTube is Bergie Bow Hunting. So uh, that is a little bit of a newer thing that YouTube is. Uh, it's going to be some tuning and setup stuff, but mostly I'm going to try to keep it geared towards bow hunting. Um, and I'll answer questions throughout the summer and do videos throughout the summers on setups and during the winter on setups. Uh, but come hunting season, you ain't going to see no tuning setup, this, that, the other thing. It's going to be straight hunting because um, that's where my passion really lies. So, yep. That that's the easiest way to get a hold of me is either is mostly Facebook. Um, and if you're a really close friend of mine, I'll give you my phone number. But uh, for the most part, Facebook is <laughs> the easiest way. Even when you have his phone number, he still mostly contacts you through Facebook. Yeah, well, it's so easy, you know. It, it is so it easy, is. especially like I have an Android phone, and a lot of people nowadays have iPhones. And like texting I, Android to iPhone is a pain some days. I'm the minority in this. I'm the only guy with an iPhone. Tyler's got an Android too. <laughs> well, it, it's kind of funny because my girlfriend, she has an iPhone. And we still primarily text via Snapchat or Facebook. <laughs> so, like, I have her phone number if I have to call her. But I hope I mean, so. I, like, I can't, I can't FaceTime her. So, I can Snapchat video call her though. Yep. So, you know, we or I can Facebook video call her. So most of my communication is done through Facebook or Snapchat. So. OK. OK. So that's how people can contact you. So then uh, just moving forward here, uh, I think we'd be remiss if we had this conversation. We've we've had an awesome conversation here about bow tuning, arrow setups, um, just kind of, you know, your time in the industry and. I'd really like to talk now about some of your accomplishments with hunting. You briefly touched on your Hawaii axis deer, but uh, I also know you've got a mule deer on the wall. You've got a couple of real nice whitetails on the wall. And like you said, you put down a bunch of animals last year. So let, let's like, yeah. uh, we're, we're a little bit running out of time here. So, um, you know, I, I kind of want to touch on just some of, some of your best on some of your best hunting story what your takeaway from it what your takeaways from it were and uh you know how how your tuning process and what you do with the bow really contributed to your success if it did right yeah and so i've been bow hunting for a long time and bow hunting is really where my passion lies with archery don't get me wrong i love setting up bows i like seeing other people's success but man i really like to kill animals uh, not to sound like just an animal slayer but like i really like everything about bow hunting you know from the chase to the stock to getting close and seeing these animals in their natural habitat and doing it to where I have to really beat all their senses and get close with a bow and fling an arrow and, you know, do my part to make sure that animal expires quickly. That is like my favorite thing in the world. Now I have shot animals at 125 yards. I have shot animals at three yards. Um, I've shot animals with a compound and a traditional bow. Um, I love it all, uh, all forms of archery. I love it. Um, my first deer ever was a spike buck. And I remember I shot that deer wearing 
a pair of white Volcom skinny jeans and black Vans with a camouflage sweatshirt on. And I smoked that deer at 30 yards right in the heart. And ever since then, I was just hooked, you know. And then, you know, so I kind of went on a dry spell. On, on that deer, do you think uh, do you think the skinny jeans contributed to your success? Well, they were white, so <laughs> I don't think so. I think that deer was just really, really dumb. Because, <laughs> and it's kind of funny because I actually had a cold uh, when I shot that deer. So I was sitting in the tree stand with my dad's fiance. And she had a cold too. And we were just popping cough drops the whole time, you know, the whole time popping cough drops, coughing. Um, and I was for sure that we weren't going to see anything, you know, and I didn't even have a range finder. Um, I was ranging just off my eyesight. And uh, like I said, it was, just one of those things. it was just one of those things. It, it was just the right place, right time, a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill. Um, my next hunt after that, I was a little disappointed on that hunt, to be quite frank. Uh, I really wanted my first deer to be with my dad. Um, uh, okay. I, I really, really wanted my first deer to be with my dad, and I didn't get to share that with him, and neither did my brother. My brother shot his first deer with my grandfather, which is almost better. Um, yeah, that's... that's... But, but for me, with my history, and like I said, my dad might as well have been Fred Bear to me. Um, yeah, it was a little bit saddening that I didn't get to do it with my dad. And the first buck I ever shot at this, the only deer I've ever lost. Um, we were hunting a piece of private that was all ag field. It was all corn and beans, no woods, none. And we knew that the deer were coming out of this, the neighboring CRP to feed on the beans. And we were knocking down corn stalks. And I was going to sit in the corn stalks about two rows deep in the corn stalks and shoot the deer in the bean field. And my dad is knocking down corn stalks in this buck giant. Uh, granted, I was 15 years old, so it might not have been as big as I thought it was. But even my dad said it was big. So this giant comes out and a doe is right behind him. And my dad looks at me and he goes, you shoot the buck, I'll shoot the doe. We'll both shoot at the same time. And I said, okay, we both came to full draw. We both shot at the same time. I center punched that deer right in the shoulder. And we tracked that deer for eight hours. It ended up doing a bunch of circles in the CRP. And so as it was doing circles in the CRP, we kept, it did a bunch of circles and then it, left the circle and circled back into the corn and bedded down and died. And, but since it did all these circles, we're just following this blood in a circle and we never caught the blood that was coming out when he ran yep. back into the corn. And so yep. we ended up finding him the next spring uh, and he was dead. And that's the only deer I've ever lost. And ever since then, high school took over and I still hadn't shot a buck. And I was like, 17 or 18 years old oh no i was 16 no I was 17 i was 17 and then i went to hawaii and my first buck was actually my axis deer <laughs> and awesome. uh, well my first branch antler Big buck. Buck. yeah yeah branch yeah, my first my first branch antler buck was my axis deer um and i came back and i was just like 
addicted. You know, I, the whole reason I went to Hawaii, my dad went to Texas the year before and shot an axis deer. And I was like, I want one of those, but I can't afford to go to Texas and do it. So I'm going to go to Hawaii. And I did it free range DIY and shot my axis deer, hung out on the beach for a bunch of days, came back. And then after that, I was just dedicated to, I'm going to still shoot does because I like to eat. But as far as bucks go, I'm not shooting any more spikes until I picked up a recurve. (laughs) (laughs) I picked up a recurve a couple years back. Gavin peer pressured me into getting rid of my compound and picking up a recurve. And uh, probably my favorite hunting story ever is my smallest buck ever. And I was sitting on a piece of private. And I was sitting on the edge of a bean field. It was November 2nd. It was two degrees outside. And there was snow on the ground. And I had drank way too much coffee that morning. And I sit down. And I'm notorious for anybody that knows me. I'm notorious for taking a shit in the woods. I don't know why. <laughs> but I am, like, notorious. There, you, Turkey hunting, deer hunting, mule deer hunting. I am notorious for taking a dump in the woods. You almost and, did it on the 3D course when I came up for a 3D <laughs> course with you. Dude, I'm two, notorious. Like a three-hour 3D course, and you're like halfway through. I got to poop. Dude, I, I told told you when i went to south dakota last year i was i was in the middle of glassing waiting to bed this buck and i'm sitting here i'm like it was this buck right here yep i was about to bed this buck and make a stock and i was like god i gotta shit man i gotta go (laughs) and i just i left my glassing knob belly crawled like a hundred yards got up crouch walked found a little deep cut and just went in there and just let her rip and then went back and luckily that buck didn't bed too far from where I left him. So, (laughs) but (laughs) so anyways, I had just taken a dump and I'm not even lying. The wind was coming in my face and I took a dump like seven yards behind me. Like it was not that far. Yeah. Well, no, the wind was in my face. (laughs) And so I took the dump behind me. So it was going behind me. I was, I was good on that on that front, but I forgot TP, so I was missing a stock. Oh my god! And I'm putting my boot back on, and I'm like in my chair. I like hopped back over to my chair because I'm sitting on the ground with no ground mind, and there's a bush to my right, uh, probably about a five five foot wide bush, and you can see on the other side of the bush, the edge of the bean field, and I see this buck start coming on, just a little spike. I'm I'm shooting a recurve. And I'm like, okay, first deer, first legal deer that I see with my recurve, and a letter rip. Put my boot back on with no sock on it. There's snow on the ground. I put my boot back on, and as I put my as my boot slips, my foot slips into my boot. This deer is at that bush that is about three yards from me. I pick my bow up. I get ready. And as soon as that deer's front shoulder came past that bush, I he couldn't have been further than three yards i i drew back he stopped he looked at me and i sent it right through um the the shoulder and that deer ran five yards and piled up and that is just like like it doesn't get much better than shooting a deer at three yards on the ground with no blind and your recurve and so for me that was just like the pinnacle of my hunting career up to that point and then i got really really addicted to 
Western hunting and mule deer hunting and, uh, you know, public land hunting. I do have a lot of private that I can hunt, but I really prefer to hunt the public. The public is closer to my house. I get to learn all of those methods of how you, you know, get on these bucks on public land with high pressure and low pressure and, you know, really learning about the species and, um, kind of following through with that and, you know, sticking with it all season on public land. Uh, and that just, that just really gets me going. I don't know, Tyler, do you hunt public or private? Um, so in college, I was mostly private. Now I've transitioned to public land. Right. And like, for me, it's just the public is so accessible nowadays you know there's a lot of accessible public land that's really really fun to hunt and really really fun to learn these new different kinds of terrain you know you got swamps you got hill country you got you know the hardwoods the big forest you got all these different terrains that you can change all these different hunting styles to kind of fit your needs for bow hunting and uh, that just really excites me and gets me going and so basically after I shot that buck at three yards, I was, I knew that from that moment on, I was no longer going to shoot any spikes or forked horns. And I was going to just straight up try to target older deer, not necessarily the most mature deer in the forest, but you know, branch antlered bucks. And uh, I'm not very picky. Uh, I like to be, I like, I like the experience, you know, I, I really like the experience. Don't get me wrong. Would I love to shoot 180 inch buck every single year? Everybody would, but I'm in it for the whole experience. So, um, well, you, you did pretty good last year. Your buck last year was, that was a good buck last year. Good whitetail. Yeah. Both bucks were pretty decent. Um, I grinded pretty hard last year. Last year was you know, my last three years have been very, very good. I've been very, very lucky. Um, three years ago, I shot that buck right there, which was a six and a half year old deer. Uh, it was on what is now public. It was being transitioned into public when I was hunting it. So um, it was private that we had hunted for 10 years. And what happened was is the landowner had 900 acres and we used to just knock on his door and be like, Hey, can we hunt this? And he's like, yep, go ahead. So we had access to 900 acres and we're college kids. Like you're in seventh yeah. heaven, you know, Yeah. you got 900 acres, 10 minutes from your house, Might as well 15 be the whole minutes state. from your work and there's big bucks on there. Well, he passes away and his kids couldn't afford to keep up with the property tax. So his kids were like, all right, we're going to sell it back to the state. And then they're going to parcel off some sections of it, put houses on it. And uh, that year they had sold it and they're like, hey, you guys got a couple more weeks. And then this section is going to be public. This section is going to be private and uh, it's not going to be through us. So you guys won't be able to hunt it. And we're like, OK. And I went out there and I sent a picture of this buck to you, Zach. But I went out there and I had just bought it. I had just switched from a recurve back to a compound and I had only sighted my bow into 40 yards and I had a giant 150 inch 10 point at 60 yards broadside, perfectly broadside. And of course my bow wasn't set up for 60 yards. Could I have 
probably got pretty close. Yeah, but I wasn't going to risk it on a buck like that. Yeah, watched where he went into the woods. I went in there. I went home, came back at 2 o'clock in the morning and hung a tree stand when I knew that they were going to be in the field feeding. And this was the opening week of gun season. And I sat in that stand the next morning and a doe walked underneath of my stand. And I don't know what possessed me not to shoot her. Um, maybe it was cause I shot two does in one night, the, the previous week or what. And I don't know what possessed me not to shoot her, but I didn't shoot her. And she walked over this Ridge and five minutes later came out of the Ridge with this six and a half year old brute grunting, snorting, pissing on himself. I mean, he was doing the whole works. He was snort weaving. He had a big scar on his neck and I sent an arrow right through him at 20 yards. He mule kicked, hit the ground. Blood was pumping out both sides. It was coming out of his nose and he put his face right back to the ground and chased that doe for another 150 yards. But after about five or 10 steps, he stopped and I knocked another arrow and I sent a second one through him. And the second one deflected and went right through his jugular, cut his jugular wide open. And uh, in the picture on my Facebook page, you can see it. There's like a big patch right underneath of his white patch of his throat that's missing. And I just sliced his jugular clean open. Blood just started pouring out. And he still put his nose back to the ground and chased that doe for 150 yards before he piled up. That's a good shot right there. And after that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is what it's all about, you know. And and then the next year I shot a buck. And then this year I shot um, my mule deer in South Dakota, DIY, all by myself on place that i've never been shot that buck came home and shot a buck a week later on public land here in minnesota and so the last couple years i've just been really really blessed with filling all my tags uh i don't think i've not filled every tag in seven years so i think i think it's been seven years since i've not filled every tag so since i was 19 years old i've filled every tag i've bought and I buy too many tags then because I buy enough tags that after I shoot about four deer a year, I'm just kind of, eh, I don't know that I need to fill that tag. So I stop hunting as hard. Actually, right. that's well, when I start taking the dog out for some pheasants. Right. <laughs> right. Well, in here in Minnesota, in the CWD zones of Minnesota, we get unlimited doe tags. Some areas are a limit of five, but... I only ever buy four doe tags and then I buy my buck tag and then I got my Western tags and I fill all of them every year, you know, and um, I'm blessed that I get the opportunity and I have a good enough job that I can go out and I can scout all year and I can run trail cameras and I. We lost you for a little bit there. Oh, uh, I said, I get off work at four o'clock. So, you know, I get off work at four o'clock. If I'm not tuning a bow that day, I can go out into the tree stand during the week on public land. And, you know, I've had a lot of situations where I kill buck during the week, you know, and yeah. 
so I'm very, very blessed in, in that aspect that I get to, you know, spend that time in the woods and, you know, really hone my skills and learn more and more every year. And this year, I mean, shoot, yeah. we're going to South Dakota this year together and, uh, Heck yeah. dude, it's going to, we're going to have a fun time. I mean, I'm not saying that we're both going to tag out, but I'm pretty confident that we're both going to tag out. So. Hey, hey man, I'm, I'm just hoping for a good trip. That's always my thing. I'm in it for the experience as much as I am the meat. I mean, obviously I love the meat. I, I, I'm the same way. I love harvesting stuff. Um, but you know, sometimes just that experience going out and, uh, hanging out with a good buddy for a week, truck camping, doing whatever, just kind of getting your butt kicked in the back country. It's, it's that real type two kind of fun that you look back on when you're 75 and you're like, that was one of the greatest weeks of my life. I swear. Yeah. But you hated it the whole week, you you're, know? <laughs> oh, you hate dude. That's how, um, so if listeners, if you go back to, um, episode one and episode two, you can hear me talk about, uh, my Wyoming mule deer this year. And I don't know if I really covered it in those videos, but when me and Ryan were out in Wyoming for a week, it was the beginning of September. It was a hundred degrees every day. And I got chafed between my legs worse than I've ever been chafed in my life. And it took two weeks for that to heal after I got home, after we shot our mule deer in Wyoming, we drove all the way back to South Dakota because we had to cut through the Black Hills to get back home to Pennsylvania. We stopped in South Dakota, got a hotel room. The shower hurt. That's how bad I was chafed. <laughs> I yeah. hated my life for those next two weeks. I was like, that was awful. And about and two then weeks like, after that, I'm like, I want to go back. Let's oh, do yeah. it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, dude, coming back to the whole shitting in the woods thing. It's become such a thing for me that I actually pack in high quality toilet paper. Like, oh, you got it, dude. I pack in a whole roll though, like oh, of, I, like, I, of like I that, that five ply, five like ply. The, My uh, oh, God, that's dude. a pillow. Yeah, dude, you got to have nice butt wipes, all right. And just saying, you got to have nice butt wipes, and the. It's one of those That's things. That's the like title you of this it. podcast. You gotta have nice butt wipes, Jesse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just one of those things where like you look back on it while you're out there and you're like, wow, this sucks, you know. And then you get back and you're like, God, can't wait to go again, you know. Yeah, and it really is. It, it's it's just it's unlike anything. And you know, last year it was really hard. You know, if I wasn't if I didn't have service where I could like DM you and Gavin throughout that trip, I remember I messaged Zach on like day two of the hunt. I was like, dude, these does, they're looking pretty tasty right now. And Zach's like, dude, you drove all the way out there yep. all by yourself. Yep. I was like, don't shoot days. a doe on day two. Yeah. Don't shoot a doe on day you're two. You're like, you're like, you got 10 days. You're like, he's like, you had 10 days. You're on day two. Shoot up. He's like, just hold out. He goes, now, if you come to day eight and nine, maybe think about shooting a doe. He's like, but you got time. He's like, and honestly, like Zach and Gavin, I haven't told either of you guys this, but you guys are the ones that kept me in the field, you know? Cause like when you're alone, sometimes out there, it can be really, oh, yeah. really hard to stay motivated, especially when yep. like my first four days, I saw probably 300 does and not a single buck. 
Yep. You know, until I didn't see my first buck until I moved spots and I moved yep. like 40 miles, you know, so I had to pack up camp, hike back out, get in the truck, drive an hour and then unload camp, set camp back up and then go hunt again. Like that takes a lot out of a person. You know, the first four days I put 73 miles on my boots. Yep. And you know, it, it can be really hard to stay in the game. And mm-hmm. I ended up shooting that buck and everybody was ecstatic. You know, I think I texted Zach um, right after I shot that. I think I FaceTimed you. You did. You FaceTimed me in the field in South Dakota. And we were talking about it for a solid like 10 minutes before you're like, all right, man, I really got to take care of this thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how much they love the harvest part of it. My favorite part of hunting, if I'm being completely honest, is the camaraderie blood tracking is is blood tracking and gutting. Really? I thought you were gonna know. say like the camaraderie. I thought you were gonna say well, like I, I love the camaraderie. All the people around I, you, that's my favorite. Well, I love that too, but the last couple of years I've done a lot of solo hunting, so I just haven't had that. Yeah. And you know, the blood tracking and like following a blood trail and then, you know, coming to the end of that blood trail and seeing this animal, this just beautiful creature that was just, you know, has survived all the elements and predators and you were able to get close enough to, to hit that mark, you know, and then getting there and like just getting your hands on them and gutting them and dragging them out. That's just, there's nothing like that to me. No, definitely not. So um, I think we've covered everything pretty well, and we're we're approaching here the hour and a half mark on the podcast. So uh, I think it's for our listeners' sake about time to wrap it up here. Jesse, if if there is one thing yeah. you would want the listeners to take away from this podcast from the stuff you've said today, what would it be? I think it'd be two things. One is shoot your bow as much as you can because you owe it to the animal to be as accurate as possible. And two, high quality butt paper. (laughs) Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, We hope you really enjoyed the episode and uh, we'll see you next time. You're on the move with Move Outdoors. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Zach, Tyler, and Ryan from Move Outdoors. And this is our brand new podcast, On the Move, presented by Move Outdoors, where you're going to follow us throughout our hunting season, learning new tactics, tips, and tricks. Yeah, we'll be sharing some of our uh, experiences throughout the year, what we're planning on doing, what our goals are for hunting, and any of the experiences that we have while we're out there in the field. And we'll try to bring them to you guys. Get ready to join us for the highs and cry with us with the lows. You're on the move.